It's a pleasure to, to meet with you and to open up God's Word with you again today. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, please turn to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going right in there right away. Uh, we have a lot of ground to cover. What a timely letter it's, it's been, right? We're finishing out our last sermon today on this wonderful series in this great book where God encourages us to stand firm in the faith because we're Christians. That's who we are. In the context of a society that is increasingly wanting us to stand aside because we're Christians. They don't like who we are. New society is increasingly wanting you to keep your beliefs and your faith locked up at home, private, or, or to update your copy of the Scriptures, right, to adapt it, to tweak it, to suit what society wants and how society wants to live life. But God very clearly gives us instructions on how we are to stand firm on Him and on His truth. So it's been a wonderful and extremely timely series, in my opinion, as you look at what's going on in society and as you reflect upon what was going on in, in Peter's day and amongst the communities that he was writing to. Last week, we looked at how Christians should handle themselves when the heat is turned up in society. God has a, a great way of of uh, pressing truths into my life through my kids. You know that well. I've, I've shared enough stories with you. One of the things that stands out from last week's sermon uh, to me is that command that we not be surprised. Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes. Expect it. Anticipate it. Because you're a Christian, there's going to be consequences. Well, uh, this week I'm sitting at home at dinner time. My wife has made this delicious lasagna, and my little four-year-old, the one you know quite well, is sitting beside me in a big boy chair. So he's not like in a high chair, he's in a regular chair, and so his head is just barely above the, the height of the table and nearly in his plate. And this lasagna is, is lovely, but the thing about lasagna, if you've ever had lasagna, is that once you scoop it out of the baking dish and plop it onto a plate, it kind of doesn't look as good. It loses its form, right? It looks like it's a human organ that's just lying on a piece of plate. And it was really, really nice. It, it, it truly was, but I, I noticed, and I didn't say anything, that my four-year-old was just staring at it. And he was quite quiet, which is unusual. And after a little while, he kind of poked my shoulder to get my attention. And he looked at me. I was, it was just a perfect little face. He looked at me. And he said, Dada, I should be grounded because I am not eating that. <laughs> now, we've never grounded him. I don't even know where he got the word grounded from, but that was it. In his opinion, I am not a lasagna eater, Daddy. That is who I am. So bring on the consequences. Just grind me. He was anticipating what would happen if he stood by his core commitment to not eat that. How do Christians handle life when society turns up the heat? We're not surprised. We expect it, right? That's what we talked about. We make sure that rather than, than getting angry and annoyed, we rejoice and we remember who it is that we are, whom we serve. We're Christians first. 
And therefore, we act out our faith while doing good and trusting in God. That's how Christians handle society's attack and assault and affront, which is coming to these shores. But here's the thing. When it gets hot out there, it becomes a little bit tense in here. A tug of war begins to emerge. Remember I told you about my wife and I sort of jostling over the thermostat because it's so hot outside and we want to determine how, how cool and how hot it is inside. When society turns up the heat, it's natural for God's people to become, begin to raise the tension in the inside amongst the family of God. So Peter, anticipating that, as he moves into chapter 5, begins to address how Christians as a local church need to handle life when society turns up the heat. How does a local church handle life when the heat is turned on on the outside? When, when everything within us wants to snap at each other and fight and squabble a little bit, disagree, essentially dissolve like that lasagna that's been scooped out of the lovely baking dish. Peter has a few words to say on that. Today I want to show you five godly instructions that the Apostle Peter passes on to a local church. Any local church, particularly a local church that's about to endure some societal heat. Now, I've got to be very, very selective this morning. Trust me, I could preach five sermons on what we are going to discuss this morning, and you don't want that. They would log off, and you would definitely nod off, so we're not going to do that. I have to be very selective. But, but before I walk you through what's there, let, let me set something up. It's very, very important that you understand a, a background context to what Peter is about to do here. It frames everything he says, but he doesn't declare it up front. And his audience would just assume that that was the case. And it's this, that there's a massive core value of God's that underpins chapter 5. And that core value of God's is order. God loves order. God loves structures. God has created a world and set boundaries and parameters around it so that it functions like clockwork as he desires. And so you could look at geography, like there's land over here and there's sea over here and the land's not in the sea and the sea's not in the land. That's Genesis 1, creation account. God separates creation so that there's geographical order, there's chronological order, right? Certain times, night and day, certain seasons, there's astronomical order, lots of planets, one sun, several moons, all in their orbits, functioning like clockwork. God loves order, societal order. The relationships that human beings engage in, be it at home, be it in marriage, be it in parenting, be it in government and subjects of a government and the local church. God loves order. It's a core value of his. And so it's natural that Peter begins to address some local church order, how things should be handled inside of the local church, particularly when the heat is turned on. Order is like the oil in an engine that makes things run smoothly. 
And so as Peter moves out of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, he wants to make sure that this local fellowship is well-oiled so that we function as we were designed to function and so that we're able to ultimately fulfill our mission in the world in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so that said, let me jump into the first of five issues that I want to deal with this morning. And the first one is addressed to elders. And, and what Peter essentially says is this, that when the heat is on, the elders must lead. When the heat is on, the elders must lead. They must provide guidance. They must provide direction. They must protect the flock. You know, leadership is a hot topic uh, these days, probably always. And the tendency is to look first to leadership principles out of battlefields and out of boardroom executives and not necessarily exclusively out of the Bible. Now, there's lots of leadership principles that we can learn from battlefield generals and from boardroom executives, but there's also some differences that the Bible highlights usually related to character and leadership styles of leading a flock which are connected with character. So here's what Peter says. Look at verse 1. So I, Peter, exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be relieved. What Peter is essentially saying, I'm talking to you elders, but I'm like you. I, I, I am a believer too, and I'm heading in the same direction that you're heading in. There's camaraderie here, right? But here's what he says, I exhort the elders among you, verse 2, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. To pastor the flock of God that is among you. Well, how do you do that? You exercise oversight. You, you lead, you govern, you direct. You don't drift. You don't dig your head into the sand when, when the heat is turned on by society. You exercise oversight. It provides us with, with three interesting specific contrasts. Number one, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. That is, not seeing it as a drudgery, as, a, as an unwanted chore, but as a delight. As a delight. Secondly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. That's to say, not for self-serving purposes. Like, like prestige or, or, or influence or some form of gain, but with zeal. In the context being zeal to serve others, not to serve yourself. And not domineering, verse 3, over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Essentially what he's saying there is you're not going to be a tyrant. You're actually going to be a template a template of godliness, so that when they see your life, they go, that's how I should live also. And verse 4, he presents a lovely little reward to encourage the elders among us. And when the chief shepherd, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, who refers to himself in John 10 as the good shepherd, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's reward for good service, for shepherding the flock of God among you God's way, according to God's order. 
So let me highlight a few things for you there that I want you to understand. We're talking about elders, but within this context, we're dealing with local church structures. We're not talking about those who are physically mature. We're not talking about elders being older people as in age, biologically old. We're talking about spiritual maturity here. We're talking about those men who have been qualified to serve and appointed to serve in God's ordered local church. Now, Peter doesn't talk here about what qualifies somebody to be an elder. God actually uses the Apostle Paul predominantly to to guide us, the Christian church, as to what it means to, to, to appoint what an elder looks like and deacons. He provides the qualifications, predominantly focusing on character in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, a little bit in Acts 20. And Paul is the one that God uses to provide some more directions as to local church order in worship, right, in 1 Corinthians. Peter doesn't focus on those things. Peter focused primarily on one key responsibility of an elder, and he uses a very familiar image to talk about that, the image of a a shepherd and sheep, a shepherd and the flock. This is, this is a beautiful metaphor that he invokes. A, a very common picture in that world, it would have been very familiar to them. In fact, it's a, it's a, it's a picture that God uses in the Old Testament also to talk about leader-follower relationships. And so it's natural that he allows Peter to use it inside of his discussion on local church structures. The elders are leaders, and the leaders are shepherds. Moses was a literal shepherd who God used to be a figurative shepherd, a leader over God's people. David was a literal shepherd whom God used to be a figurative shepherd, a leader over God's people. God himself is often cast as the shepherd of his people. I said earlier that Jesus in John 10 says, I am the good shepherd. Repeatedly in the scriptures, uh, you hear accounts of when Jesus is ministering and people are coming to him like in the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus says they're like sheep without a shepherd. Perhaps most familiar to all of you is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. It's a very common image that Peter invokes here to talk about the responsibilities of your local church leaders, of my local church leaders there to shepherd. Shepherds oversee the lives of their sheep. They govern their lives. They make sure that they don't just survive, but that they thrive as happy, well-fed fluffy sheep. You know, I, we don't like to be deemed sheep for the very reasons that the Bible refers to us as sheep. Sheep wander. Sheep stray. Sheep find ways to harm themselves. Sheep are vulnerable to attack. Sheep need protected. Sheep need fed. I know this. I am from the island of Ireland. We have more sheep than people on the island. That's what sheep do. It's, it's, it's not an accident that, that the Scriptures continually refer to human beings as sheep. 
That's what we do. We need shepherded. We need a good shepherd. And God has provided in, in, in his local church qualified men to be able to step into that role and, and you're to shepherd the flock among you. Well, what does that mean? It means that you guide us. You make decisions. You help people make good decisions. You protect us. You, you point out what's wrong in our lives. You point out what's wrong in society so that you can protect us from the wolves that want to devour. You feed us. You make sure we're well fed, that we're on a good diet of the Word of God so that that's what we live for. It's a wonderful picture. Shepherd sheep imagery that, that Peter uses here to speak about the responsibilities of an elder. It's, it's defining godly leadership. Be warned if you're an elder or an aspiring elder, there's a lot of work leading God's people. Very little reward here and a lot of bleating sheep. But what an honor to be able to follow in Jesus Christ's footsteps. A shepherd a flock of people when the heat is on. Guiding, protecting, feeding. So first, when the heat is on, our elders must lead. You must lead as well. Leadership is essential. Perhaps never been more essential because we live in an era in the West that is anti-anything that's authority. I'm not just making that up. That, that's one of the core values of the postmodern era in which we live in. If it smells of authority, I reject it. There's an anti-authority spirit in the air, and that's not Christian. So elders, you must have the courage to lead us. Uh, second instruction that, that Peter passes on for a local church is, is, is this. When the heat is on, the church must follow. Peter keeps it very, very simple. The church must follow. That's our responsibility. Look at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Submit to the elders. Now, Peter calls the rest of us the younger. But again, that doesn't mean physically young. And they wouldn't have understood that. Oh, he's only talking to those who are of a certain age. They wouldn't have understood that. They would clearly have seen that in light of him just addressing the elders. That's the way they talked about leaders, followers. The younger ones, the rest of the church, the rest of us must follow their lead. We must submit to their decisions. We must honor their position. We don't huff and puff when they do what we don't want them to do. We don't reject their direction even if we think we know better. And there's proper channels in a church like this for you to express your voice, like later on today. They'll listen. They'll reflect. But we respect. It's God's appointed order. Take it up with him. It's God's appointed order. They are God's appointed man to care, to protect, to guide, and to feed the flock. It is in our interest as sheep to follow our shepherds. Now, this irritates modern Western sensibilities. Be honest. This gets under your skin a little bit. 
gets under my skin a little bit, right? I can feel the tension in the room. I, I, can, I can feel it coming through that camera right back at me from whatever homes you're watching this in. Submit? Never. It's like a core value in Western society. Submission, my friend, is profoundly Christian. It's a profoundly Christian virtue. Don't buy into society's lie that defines submission as weakness, that defines submission as someone being cast as of lesser worth. What does that do to the Lord Jesus Christ? All over the New Testament, it is very, very clear that he is presented as an example of submission to the Father. Who did not consider, Paul says in Philippians 2, who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself in the way of salvation. Is the Son of God less than the Father? Is the Son of God weaker than the Father? I submit not. He chose to submit himself to the Trinity's plan of salvation, order of salvation, and he did so willingly. Repeatedly in the Gospels, Jesus is cast as one who submits to the Father. So to submit as called for by God within those spheres of human relationships appointed by God is godly. It's good. It's not weakness. You know what it is? It's worship. That's what it is. It's worship. It's aligning your life to the way God has ordered things so that they operate as he desires. It's worship. It is profoundly Christian. It is profoundly Christ-like. In a few seconds, you're going to see that it is an expression of humility. God loves humility. I love what uh, an ancient 15th century Christian writer says, and he says it from God's perspective. I hope it connects with you. It certainly connects with me when I read it. He says this, What great matter is it if you, who are but dust and nothing, subject yourself to man for God's sake? When I, the Almighty and the Most High, who created all things of nothing, humbly subjected myself to man for your sake. O oh, dust, learn to be obedient. O oh, dust, learn to humble yourself, you of earth and clay. Well said, ancient Christian man from the 15th century. He's reading his Bible. He's aligning his life to God's orders in creation. When the heat is on, the church must follow, even if our elders and pastors are not perfect. I read a, I've read it before. It's a very old and well-circulated fictional piece, but I think it captures the point nicely. Let me read it to you. It says this. It's entitled The Perfect Pastor or The Perfect Elder. We find them. After hundreds of years, we find him, the pastor or elder who's, who will please everyone. He preaches 20 minutes and then he sits down. He condemns sin, but he never steps on our toes. He makes 400 bucks a week, but he gives most of it back to the church. And we as his parishioners can still look good in town because he wears nice clothes. 
We find him. He's 36 years old, but he can preach like he's been doing it for 40 years. He's a burning desire to be with the youth, and he spends all of his time with senior citizens. He always smiles while keeping an appropriate straight face. He visits all church members, yet spends all of his time evangelizing non-members while studying the Bible alone with God all day. We find him, yes. But sadly, he burnt himself out after a week and he died at 32. God bless him. It's good. Listen, this is good. This makes through fun a point. You need to give your pastors and elders a break. There are none of them that are perfect. I mean, Cody's pretty close. But none of them are perfect. But you know who can be perfect in their role? The rest of us. All we have to do is follow. Follow their lead. The third of the five godly instructions, need to move fast, is directed to all of us. We've talked to elders, we've talked to the rest of us, but now Peter directs attention to all, elders and church alike. And essentially what he's saying is this, that when the heat is on, we must all wear humility. We all must wear humility. Look at verses five to seven. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. How do you humble yourself? Well, verse 7, very famous verse. I'd love to preach a sermon on that. I can't. Verse 7, casting all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. There's an attire theme, a dress code theme that Peter introduces here. You know, Christians like to dress up on Sundays to go to church. And some Christians like to dress down on Sundays to go to church. You ask me, I'm okay with either. But what I'm not okay with is the battling about whether we should dress up or whether we should dress down. And guess who's not interested in whether you're wearing polished shoes or flip-flops, jackets or t-shirts? God isn't interested. You know what he deems your Sunday best? What he deems your everyday best? That you clothe yourselves in humility. Dress yourself up in that. God's people is what God says. That's your Christian uniform. That's what sets our team apart from society. It's our distinctive. Beautiful imagery that he uses there, clothe yourselves, is essentially language of a slave putting on a slave apron to serve. That's what's rooted there. And of course, humility, you know this well, is not thinking less of yourself. Oh no, I'm a lowly worm. It's thinking about yourself less. It's, it's, it's not living in a me, my, mine kind of mentality, but a you, you, you mentality. How can I serve you? It's the opposite of an inflated sense of self. The proverb that Peter quotes there, God opposes the proud. The word opposes wars. God goes to war when he sniffs pride in your life. I love what the theologian St. Augustine said. He says so many things so well. He says this, if you're to ask me, what are, the th- what are the ways of God? There's three. Number one, humility. 
Number two, humility. Number three, humility. He's reading the Bible, just like the 15th century guy was reading the Bible. Fourth, still all of us being addressed. When the heat is on, we must all resist the devil. We must resist the devil, all of us, elder, parishioner alike. We must stand and against the devil. We must oppose him. Be sober-minded, verse 8 says. Let's think straight. And be watchful. That means be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, to pick you off. Resist him. Verse 9, resist him. How? Well, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. In one sense, the curtain's drawn back here to reveal who it is that is manipulating and inciting and causing the hardship that's coming upon Christians in society. It's the devil himself. Paul tells us in Ephesians that he rules over an organized system that's strategic. Here, Peter tells us that he's a, he's a lion and he's on the hunt and he's hungry and Christian meat's his favorite meal. He wants to eat us up. You know that 60% of evangelicals in the North American church do not believe that the devil is actually real. That's a startling fact, that he's some sort of fictional way of talking about the reality of bad things, that, that he's kind of like that dragon-looking, pointy-tailed, pitchfork-holding caricature from the medieval era. He just wants to tease you. It's dangerous to reduce him to something as funny a caricature as that. The scriptures teach that he is smart, that he is sneaky, that he is adaptable, that he is tactical, that he is beautifully attractive, that he is seductive, that he is experienced with the human heart, and that he is powerful. That he stalks us and baits us. But the Bible also teaches that he's defeated by another lion, the lion of Judah. Don't forget that we can resist. We can stand. Peter, again, doesn't elaborate on the how. Paul elaborates upon it in Ephesians 6. Putting on the armor of God. No, putting on the whole armor of God, which includes a disposition of prayer in Ephesians 6. Praying always all sorts of petitions in the Spirit We've got to resist. You know who teaches me about being alert and sober-minded when there's a lion prowling around? Zebras. Zebras. Ah, you go with zebras. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, you know, the horse that's kind of black and white. Oh, man, look at those wildlife documentaries on TV. You see the... the, the, the zebras out there, uh, and you see the lion in the thicket, and, and, and you're like, poor fella, he's about to get gobbled up. I don't want that, but I do. I want to see what happens. You don't see zebras uh, treating their walk through a beautiful safari park lightly. 
They don't get distracted by the beauties of safari and they certainly do not pretend that there's no lions in the long grass. They know lions are real. When the heat is on, my friends, we must resist the devil and we can. Not give him an inch, not give him a foothold. Don't read those blogs, don't read that stuff on social media. If it discourages your spirit, don't watch those movies and those shows on Netflix and Amazon Prime. If they're flagrantly opposed to God, they chip away at your ability to resist. They're like self-inflicted wounds that the lion will sniff out and pounce. And, and last, fifthly, a vital instruction, when the heat is on, we must all trust the, in our great God, for he rules forever. I am convinced that if God would grace us with his presence this morning by opening the heavens and popping his head into this room, and, and we were able to ask him, what do you want? That he would say, all I want is that you trust me. Just trust me. Just believe me. Just trust me. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. He will essentially, what those words mean, he's, he we will fix our brokenness and he will stabilize us and he will put steel in our back and he will lay a foundation beneath us so that we can stand firm. As Peter closes out this book, he really is focusing on the grace of God. All along in this book, he said that the grace of God is what saves us. He called us. All along, he's told us is that the grace of God that sustains us He's the one that's going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And ultimately, it's the grace of God that secures us, allows us to go beyond into, verse 11, a dominion that will last forever and ever. That's 1 Peter. I sure hope it has filled you with hope. It, it, it parallels our days in many ways. You know what I love, what inspires me, is that about 100 years after 1 Peter, we know that believers had received 1 Peter 100 years before, and they'd passed it on generationally. There's a pagan writer, a governor in that area, who writes to the emperor saying, I need your advice on how to handle affairs up here. One of the issues is, what do I do with Christians? They're actually harmless in society. They meet in the mornings. They sing to a God that's dead as if he were alive. They commit themselves to doing good. And then they come back at night after work to eat together. We can stand firm in the faith. Others have before. But let's respect God's orders. Amen. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that it, it speaks so relevantly into our affairs. We thank you that we've been able to walk with you through this series and learn a little bit more about how we're to live life in these days because they are heating up. Thank you for the encouragement that you've provided through your servant, Peter. 
Help us to, to respect our leaders. Help our leaders to have the courage to lead. Help us all to dress ourselves up every day for you in humility so that we can stand and resist the devil's attack and ultimately live a life that trusts you because that's eternal life. Amen.